So today, we are actually going to be looking in John 15, if you want to open your Bibles to John 15. And while you're doing that, I'll let you know a little bit about why we're doing John 15. Uh, this is actually what we've been studying in the, uh, in the youth group and in the college group for the past few months. We've been in the upper room uh, in the Gospel of John, and uh, it has been just a blessing uh, all of the things that we have not only learned, but just the, the things that the Lord has been using uh, in our lives through his word to refine us, to change us, uh, show us things within us that, that need to go, uh, to show us uh, the, the, the comfort and the peace, the joy, the love of Jesus Christ that he is giving to his 11 disciples uh, right before uh, he is betrayed by Judas and crucified. And so today, we're going to enter in really quickly in this short amount of time we have into the upper room with the 11 disciples and with Jesus Christ and read a little bit here in John 15. Uh, but, you know, this is, it's always hard uh, to do this, uh, to jump in the middle of, of Scripture without giving context. So just to kind of let you know where we're at and, and, and what's going on in the, the Gospel of John in this place. Basically, like I said, the, Jesus is with his 11 disciples. They are in the upper room. Uh, this is the night that he will be betrayed by Judas. He is going to uh, be crucified very soon. Uh, he'll be arrested, wrongly tried for blasphemy and treason, sentenced to death. The disciples know that their Messiah is about to be taken from them, about to be murdered. Uh, they know that he's not going to do anything to stop it from happening. Uh, they know that he is about to leave them. And their fear is he's going to leave them alone, leave them helpless, forsake them, and leave them here forgotten. They have no job. They've left everything to follow him. They've left their lives behind. They've put all of their hope in him. And this is not their expectation. This is not what they had anticipated. This was not their plan. And, and you can see in their words that they feel like there's something that they need to do about it. This is a very distressing time for them. And Jesus is going to give them many words of, of comfort, many words of truth as they sit there. But you can see in their words, and we'll look at some of these in a second, this, the disciples' desire to, to do something, to stop it, to, to help him, to do something. And this is our tendency as well. This is what we want to do. When things are hard, when, when, when things, we can't see the end result, we can't see the end outcome, we have a natural tendency to want to fix problems, right? To flee from trouble. When we think events should be happening differently or if they should be happening in our way, happening in our timing, according to our approval, we naturally try to figure things out without omniscience, without the ability to know what is ultimately good in God's mind. We doubt it will turn out for our good. Even though we read the words, we doubt it will glorify God or we would be totally behind it. And we worry, we become angry, we become envious, anxious, jealous. And usually it's when we realize we have no control. All of us are constantly fighting to control little things in life that we just don't have any control of. And ultimately, we try to control the circumstances of all life many times, and we have no ability to do this. You can see it in the disciples. Like I said, if you, I said open to John 15, but if you scan through John 13 through 16, basically, you see them saying this over and over. You see the 12 uh, hearing his words and then struggling with what Jesus is saying to them. Again, just like we do, right? The Lord speaks, but we read his word and we still are like, really? I just, I'm not sure it's going to work out that way. When he tells them of, of his betrayal, it says that they were all grieved and they said, surely not I, Lord. I mean, the first thing is they're going to defend, it's not me, I would never do that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a self-assessment of, well, not me. 
I would never do that to you, Lord. And then they begin to look at each other to figure out who it's going to be. It's definitely not going to be me. Is it going to be you? It's not going to be me. Is it going to be you? And they're looking at each one another, trying to figure out who it is that's going to betray him. Because all of them look at themselves and self-righteously would say, absolutely not me. You see Peter talking about it later. He says, Lord, where are you going? Why can I not follow you now? He wants to go with him now, wherever it is. And he doesn't know where it is. And he even says, I will die for you. Again, looking at the situation, wanting to control it, wanting to say, I want to, and and it's not a bad thing to want to be with Christ, but Peter wants to go with him now. Peter wants to die with him now. You see, Thomas, when when Jesus, right after, right after the words come out of Jesus' lips, and he says, you know the way where I'm going. You see, Thomas, shout out, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I mean, it's a, it's a direct argument to what Jesus had just told him. You know the way I am going. We do not know where or how to get there. And that's what Thomas says to him. You see, Philip, say it, uh, Philip says, uh, Jesus tells him that, that if you have known me, you know the Father. And, and Philip says, that's great, but Lord, just show us the Father and that's enough for us. Again, I know, Lord, what you have just said, but look, we just want it our way. If you just show us, that's good enough. It's, almost, it's even, even disguised in humility. Rather than trusting the words, it's just like, look, just do this one little thing. We don't need all that, just this one little thing, and that's enough for us. Judas, not Iscariot, later says to him after Jesus says, I'm going to manifest myself to you. You will know me. You will see me, but the world will not see me. Judas says, how will you manifest yourself to the world and not to us? In other words, we can't figure this out. How are all these things true? How is this good? Why can't we go with you? How how in the world are we going to find you if we don't know the way and we don't know where you're going? And then finally, at the very end, in in, in, uh, John 16, you see all of them say this. He says, what is it that he says that we do, not, uh, we do not know what he is talking about? I mean, they basically conclude, we just don't know what you're saying. We know that you're going to die. We've heard all of these words, but there's still strife. We just don't know what you're saying. And then, and, and it's actually almost funny, if you read in John sixteen thirty, after he has spoken to them, done all these things, finally, they get to this point where they actually say these words. They finally get to this point. He, they say, look, he, he finally speaks something of clarity, or so they think. And they say, now we know that you know all things. I mean, after this entire time of spending with him, the last three years of watching him walk on water and make bread out of nothing and raise the dead, they, they finally, you know, like, finally, now we get it. Now we know that you know all things, and you have no need for anyone to question you. And by this, we believe that you came from God. And you would think the next words out of Jesus' lips would be, finally. I'm so thankful you finally got it. Now you believe. But look what he says. He says, Jesus answered them and said, do you now believe? And then he says, behold, an hour is coming and has already come. In other words, now, for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that, uh, that in me you may have peace. In other words, they didn't get it. Even when they thought they did, they still hadn't gotten to the place where they got it. And Jesus tells them, listen, you're going to betray me. You're going you're to leave me. You're going to forsake me. But he says, I'm not alone. The Father's with me. He's already said these words prior to this. And he says, I'm even telling you all this. Even your own forsaking me so that you will have peace. And this is what we need. We are like the disciples you have the full revelation of God sitting in your lap, on your iPad, in, your, in a book form, whatever you got right in front of you. 
If you're born again, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you to give you discernment, to allow you to know him and to understand his word, to follow him, to believe in him. But we still doubt. We still want control. We still want things in our timing. We still read his words and then say, but in my situation, we still have the... And then finally when we get it, we're like, we get it. And, and it's the same thing. Do you? Do you get it? Are you sure? Because when that next bill comes in, doesn't look like you got it. When your daughter says that to you, doesn't look like you got it. When you when you when you when you got to work late and you don't want to be, it doesn't look like you got it. We have a lot of times where though we say we get it, it doesn't look like we got it. But the peace of Christ is this: He gives us joy. He gives joy to all of His children, even when we fail, even when we flee from trouble, even when we forsake those we love, even when we want control and we're willing to fight to get our way in our timing, even when we disagree and argue with God because we just cannot trust that his words are true and that he really knows what he is doing, even when we think that our specific circumstance is the rare occasion when disobedience is actually going to be okay and maybe even better than submission, even when we miss the whole point of the test because our ears are dull of hearing, when our loving father through his patient discipline, guides us to the place where our stubborn hearts are broken and our blinded eyes are open to see the perfect orchestration of his loving will. And we repent of our sins and we run back to him. Not only does he forgive us and welcome us, but so do our brethren, so do our friends, so do his friends in the church. And we realize that all of the trouble, even the parts that we cause, he actually meticulously crafted to produce humility, mercy, and love. He does all of this for the good of his children, purposefully allowing circumstances that you and I would look at and call them temptations, tests, trials, trouble, tribulation, persecution, suffering, and he takes those situations and puts them together with the love that he has expressed in his word and if we will just listen and submit and obey and walk through those things not only do we see his love but he causes us to love and to become more like Jesus Christ He's, he's, he's doing this with his disciples in this night. In fact, again, if you look before John 15, uh, you, you see him comforting the disciples over and over and over. And look at the words he says. It's not just words of emotional comfort. I, had the, I think these are not up there. But, but I'm just going to look at John 13 through 15 real quick and just read certain parts that you can see. That Christ is not just giving them emotional comfort so they feel good for the next few hours. He's giving them solid truths. That, so that they know that not only is he can in, in control, but this is actually not only for their good, but for the good of all and God's perfect will. It's all perfectly timed and ordained. He says in John 13, starting in verse 31, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. I mean, they're thinking now the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and taken away and crucified, and he's telling them the whole purpose and the foundation of what's about to happen is my glory and his glory. Believe. 
He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He goes on to say, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he tells them how. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. He tells them, I am going to prepare, to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. He then says, I am the way. From now on, you know the Father, he says, and have seen him. And then he tells them, believe me. He tells them, believe the works. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth. He says, you know him. He abides with you and will be in you. Those would have been big words. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will come to you. You will see me. Because I live, you will live. And you will know that I am in the Father. And you in me and I in you. He goes on to say, I will disclose myself to you. My Father will love you. We will come to you and make our abode with you. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Rejoice because I go to the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. He is in full control. This is exactly what God has commanded. This is to the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. He has told them along the way every single thing that he is doing, will be doing. They will send the Spirit, what the Spirit will do in their hearts. These are not just comforting emotional words. These are truths from God's own lips to let them know not only is he in control, this is God's foreordained plan before the beginning of the world for the salvation of mankind, and he's about to send the Spirit to indwell them to allow them to know him in a way that they cannot currently know him. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice in the trial. Rejoice in the distress. Rejoice in the tribulation. For all things are in my hand, he says, and it is not only good for you, but it is perfectly good. Believe in me, he says. Believe in God. So how do we rejoice? How do we rejoice when his trial comes we say, crashing down on us? How do we believe when his words seem impossible or even untrue? How do we trust when his way seems worse than our way? And how do we hope when it feels like all is lost? Right before the verse we're going to look at, he says this to his disciples. Look at John 15. John 15, verses 4 and then 9 through 11. He says, abide in me. That is the answer. Abide in me. And then he tells them, abide in my love. Two commands, abide in me, abide in my love. And then he actually gives them the prescription how to abide in his love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's not just a hopeful statement. That's from God's lips telling us, if you abide in my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I am the example, he says. These things I have spoken to you, why? So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. In the distress, in the trial, in the hard circumstance that you cannot trust him, that he's in control, if you abide in him and if you abide in his love, By obeying his word in the same way that he obeyed his father's word, not only does the joy of Christ dwell within you, but your joy will be made full. That's what he says. To abide means to continue to exist in, to remain in, to endure, to continue through, to dwell with, to hang on to, to trust, to fight away anything that would pull you away from him. 
and anything that would cause you to doubt or stray, to remain within the sphere of Jesus Christ and to remain in his love. And that's what we're going to talk about today, remaining in the love of God. We must remain submissive to his word if we're going to remain in his love. And if we remain in him, his joy will be in us and our joy will be made full. That's the secret behind suffering, trials and tribulations. In fact, if you go look in your Bible and you look at all the times rejoicing or joy and suffering and tests and trials and and, and tribulations are connected, there are so many times because they go hand in hand only for the believer. For the unbeliever, Trials will drive them more and more in their hatred of God, more and more to disconnect themselves from the church, more and more away from those who love them. For the believer, God uses tests in our life to humble us, to cause us to be more loving, and to shape us and refine us and to craft us and make us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he is doing. He gives an analogy right here in John 15 of a vine and the vine dresser and the branches. He says that Jesus himself is the vine, that we are the branches that have to abide in him, connected to him, remain connected to the vine. And then he uses the, the analogy of the father, God the father being the vine dresser. And the father meticulously prunes and shapes for the purpose of production. He selectively removes parts of the branch to perfect the shape, to strengthen the yield of the fruit, the quality of the fruit of all of the branches that are attached to Jesus Christ. The Father removes anything in us that is diseased, anything that will damage us, anything that that is part of the branch that will hurt us or that will cause a lack of fruit, and he prunes it so that there is an abundance of fruit. And the vine dresser is not satisfied with the quality of the fruit until each of his branches produce fruit that looks and tastes as sweet and as complete as the fruit from his very own begotten branch, Jesus Christ. He is not satisfied with my fruit, with your fruit, with all of our combined fruit until it looks like the fruit of Christ. That is what he is doing. And love, love, is what that fruit altogether is. He is producing love in all of us through trials, through suffering. As we submit to his word, cling to him, trust in him, believe him. Love is the main theme of Christ's instruction to his disciples. Love is the main theme of Christ to all of us. Love is the main theme of all the instruction of God throughout scripture. In the upper room, Jesus defines love and he actually gives himself as the very tangible, visible example and standard and model of love. He is the example that they are follow. He is the measurement that their love must measure up to. And that is always the way it is. Jesus Christ and nothing less. In the upper room, he mentions this 25 times. 25 times, more than any other thing that he mentions in this conversation. In John 13, 35 to 30, uh, 34 to 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He commands them to love, and then he tells them the example, their, their allegiance, their abiding in him and remaining in him, their, their Christ-likeness is completely connected to them loving others. It's not new that they have not heard about loving others before. Love has always been the foundational characteristic that describes God and has always been his command for his people. Jesus even said this back in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, uh, talking about the Old Testament, talking about the law of Moses. 
uh, he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the greatest and foremost commandment. And the second one is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. What, that, that, I love when Jesus comments on Old Testament scripture. You don't have better exposition than God the Son himself speaking of the things that he himself inspired men to write down Uh, inspire Moses to write, God is commentating on his own word and saying, you can sum it all up by this. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In Mark 12, 31 of the same verses, he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. If that's what God says about his own word, we have to listen and submit to what he says. It's new only in that they have now witnessed what that love looks like. This is not a new commandment. God has never said this before. It's a new commandment because now they have seen a man live out that love that God had prescribed in the Old Testament. And that had never happened before and has never happened since. Jesus Christ came and loved the Lord, his God, with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved every other person more than himself. And he is the only one that has exemplified that love. And he is the standard of that love. And that, he says, is the same thing that his children should be characterized by. We must imitate his love. It is the attribute that should sustain us, characterize us, that is being produced in us more and more abundantly through distress, trials, tribulations, and tests. Love is what distinguishes the Christian from the unbeliever. Love is what drives the child of God to obey and submit to their father. Love is what the Lord produces in the lives of all of his children through trials as we submit to the word. Love is the summation of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is what the branches will bring forth if they are abiding in the vine. Love is what the vine dresser is pruning the branches to produce. And only love that the vine dresser is satisfied, the only love he is satisfied with is the same love that he sees in his son, Jesus Christ. So the secret is this, that the formula for cultivating Christ-like love, and we're always praying that, help me to be more like Christ. Father, help me to love others in the same way that you love me. The formula for that love, if that's the love that you truly want, If the Spirit of God is within you calling you to love others like that, then the way that you will love others, the formula for cultivating that love is obedient submission to the Word of God as you walk through tests, trials, temptations, and tribulations in this life. And the disciples in John 15 were right in the middle of the fire. And we, we ourselves, both individually and collectively, are in the middle of trials and tests. And this is why the Lord is doing it. So, Finally, there's the introduction. Look at John 15, verse 12. I mean, if you thought that was, we're only going to look at one verse, all right? If you want the rest of them, go listen to the college sermons. In John 15, 12, he says this. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand this. Father, we have no capability to comprehend your truth apart from your spirit. We may be arrogant enough to think that we can, but we cannot, because you have said we cannot. It is only through the Spirit of God within us that we are able to have our minds and our ears open to see and to hear the truth that you have proclaimed to us, for that truth to penetrate our hearts and to show the things within us that have to go to help us to become more like Christ. Lord, we pray this morning through the power of your Spirit, through the revelation of your written will given to us, help us, Father, 
to understand these words. Help us to change and to become more like Christ. Help us to become both individually and collectively a body of believers that loves others in the way that you love us. And we pray, Father, that you would use anything in our lives to drive us to love more like Christ. And we pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Uh, When he says a commandment here, Jesus doesn't use this word very often. Really, honestly, other than referring to the Old Testament commandments, he really never commands. I mean, he says things in the imperative voice, which means it is a command, it is an order for the disciples. But here, he is saying, this is my commandment. This is a direct instruction, an essential mandate, an imperative order from God himself, a critical decree, and there is no wavering with this one. There's no gray area with this one. There is only this. Love one another to the same measure and the same capacity, to the same standard that you have seen me love you. That is his command. It is a divine decree. If you and I are in Christ, if we are of Christ, if we are with Christ, then we must love exactly like Christ, period. That's the call. And every time we fall short, which, which short, not shorts, which will be many, many times, we must repent, get back up, and keep running towards the standard. The word love here is just, just base definition. It's a, it's a love based on sincere appreciation and high regard or concern for. In other words, it's not based on the lovability or the, 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 the likeness of the person that you are loving. We don't love others because they're lovable. We don't love others because they've done something to merit our favor. We are called to love them because Christ loves us and he loves them. And we must love them in the way he loves. I mean, you think about you. He didn't love you because you were lovely. And if you think he did, then you might not know him. He didn't love you because you did something good enough for him to love you. He didn't look down through the corridors of time and go, well, that was pretty good. All right, I love him. He loves you solely because he loves you. And and it's based on his love. People have described this kind of love as an absolute love, an unconditional love, not based on the merit or favor of the person being loved, but purely from an unrestricted, unlimited, unrequired motive. That's a good way of looking at it. This is an unconditional love that is unrestricted by what that person may do to you, may say to you, you may think of you. You just keep loving. That's exactly how he loves me. And any of his children in here would say the same thing, right? That is how he loves you. Think of how many times. You do exactly what the disciples are doing. You disagree with him. You argue with him. You don't trust him. You take things into your own hands. And every time you come running back and you're like, I'm a fool. Father, will you please forgive me? And every time he forgives you, every time he loves you, because that's how he loves us. We are to love Uh, He says, uh, uh, just as he has loved us. Here's the standard, Jesus Christ. He says, just as I have loved you, in as much as I have loved you, to the same degree or the same measure is what it means. He is the standard. This is why Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 can say this. It says, and I mean, again, if you just read this verse, this is crazy. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, it says, be imitators of God. Everybody in here should be like, wait, what? You know, I mean, that's one of those verses that should stop you in your track unless you are just as arrogant as Satan. And you're like, yeah, I could do that. You know, I mean, that, I mean that's the only person that, uh, you, you, to be imitators of God. As beloved children, it says. So you're looking at your father and you want to imitate him because you are his child. And then he, he lays out the standard again. He says, and walk in love. That means conduct yourself, behave, live this way, live in love, just as, in the same thing, same measure, same standard, 
just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. So what we're going to do for the rest of the time that we have is look at how did Christ love us? What did that standard look like? And how are we to love others? First thing, if you look in the close context, John 13, 1, he loved them endlessly. There was no end to his love. There was no end to his love either in time or in substance. They didn't reach a certain time period where he ended loving them. And they didn't do enough things for him to not love them at that point. He loved them to the end. In John 13, 1, it says he loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the very end. Our love must be endless. There is no cap on our love. Secondly, our love must be obedient. He loved them obediently. We just read this in John 15. But he says in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It's not up to us to define love, to set the standard for love. It's not up to us to argue what love is to him. In fact, our job is to untrain our minds to believe the things that we have been taught growing up or that we may think right now and let it be renewed and retrained by his word so that our definition and our expression of love are the same as his. If your definition of love differs at all from his, you are wrong and you must change. If my expression of love differs any from his, I am wrong and I must change. We must love like he loves. And the only way to know love is to know him and know his word. In 1 John, it says that God is love, right? God reveals himself through his word. God is love and God has revealed his character and nature through his word. The only revelation of love is the word of God. If it disagrees with the word, it is not love. Because God is love. And he defines love through his word as he reveals to us who he is and what he has done and what he says. The only way we are able to love or to understand love is to obediently submit to his truth. Think about this. Christ got it. Christ never spoke or acted on his own initiative. He says the words I speak are his words. The things I do are his works. Christ always submitted himself to his father. He says I do nothing of my own initiative. And we must exemplify him. He is always submissive to his father in love. And in the same way that his spirit is submissive to him in love, then we must, if we are driven by the spirit of God, then we must love in the way that he is loved. If, if God is love and Jesus only does and says what God does and says and Jesus loves others, and if the Spirit of God only does and says what Jesus commands the Spirit to do, and then that Spirit resides in me and in you, then not only do we have the love of God dwelling within us, but we have the love of God to, to drive us to love in the way that Christ loves. And we have his word to, to retrain our fleshly mind and the things that we don't understand to draw us back in to walk on that path of love till the day we die. We must be submissive and obedient to his word. Thirdly, he loves joyfully. In John 15, 11, he says, these things I've spoken to you so my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. If we submit to his word and do what he says, not only is his joy within us as we do those things, but our joy is made full. That, that's, that's the secret behind those verses. 
When it says rejoice in trials and tribulations, when it talks in Philippians 1.29 of suffering being a grace gift, in James 1, 2 through 4, that we are to, 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 to consider all joys and tests and trials, this isn't some sort of mental thing that you just got to conjure up in those moments. You know, it's like, oh, this hurts, but joy, and you're trying to pull that smile out and be joyful. This is a deep understanding that is only possible through the Spirit of God working in you, giving you clarity and discernment and submission as you read the Word of God and you walk through those trials that you actually rejoice and are joyful because the joy of Christ is in you and as you submit to him and love others, his joy is in you and your joy is made full. And therefore, after that has been done, you can say with all truthfulness, I rejoice because I know not only will this be for my good and my family's good, but for the good of all mankind and this will culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ no matter what the circumstances look like because you know who is in control and you know what his plan and his will are because you're in his word and you're submitting to his word and there's nothing that can take that joy from you except disobedience and a lack of submission and a lack of love. Jesus rejoiced in his father's will and he submits to his father's word with joy and as his joy will be manifest in us if we submit uh, to uh, uh, his word in trials. We, we see in Hebrews 12, it says that, that it was the joy set before him, the joy set before Christ, that he endured the cross despising the shame, that he endured hostility by sinners against himself. It was joy. He joyfully went to the cross. He joyfully Endure the mocking and the insults and the trials and the, the disciples fleeing from him. Not to say that it did not hurt emotionally. Not to say, I mean, he was also in the midst of that joy, a man acquainted with agony and grief. He agonized in the garden. But there can be joy in the agony. And there can be joy in the suffering. And there can be joy in the pain. Because Christ is in us. That is what he does for his children. Look at what the disciples, his closest friends on this night, after he tells them all these things, they denied him, they questioned him, they forsook him, they did not believe him, they argued with him. Peter denies him even with cursing, right? They ignored him, they abandoned him, and they lied to him. Peter said he was willing to die for him. That looks like a lie to me. The rest of them said they would stay with him, but they didn't. And what did Jesus do? Did he call them all out? He said, all of your words are worthless. You are supposed to be the ones. How am I going to trust my church with people that can't even die with me? He didn't do that at all. How did he love those 11 men? He did not abandon them. He did not leave them. He did not forsake them. In fact, positively, he sustained them. He continued to pray for them. He taught them everything. They needed to know to glorify him. He encouraged them. He helped them. He counseled them. He corrected them. He stayed with them to the end. He found them after they fled, forgave them, and guided them back to himself with gentleness, meekness, kindness, and love. And that is what Christ does for his friends. He laid down his own life willingly, setting aside his equality with God to enslave himself, not only to them, but even to his enemies and to his father's will in obedience to God's word with love for God and for them. That is what Christ does. He even bore their burdens and their sins and their punishment on the cross with patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness and joy to ensure that they would be with him forever. 
and we must love like he loved. He is our example. We must be able and have to be able as his children or as his friends to love others who sin against us. We are called to bear the burdens they place upon us, endure the afflictions and the pain and the sin that they put our way. We must remain with them as they strive against us. And we do not return insult for insult and we walk in love as Christ loved, not as self-proclaimed martyrs, not proclaiming our woes and our self-pity, but with joy, knowing that not only is this for the good of all those who believe, but it's so that you will become more like Christ and you will love like Christ. Flip over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you want to know what the love of Christ looks like and you want to know the pathway or the formula for loving like Jesus Christ, I believe Isaiah 53 is a beautiful picture of the endless, obedient, joyful love of Christ. If our hope is to be like him and for our love to be like his love, this is the standard and here is the path that you must walk in life. Because this is how Christ loves his enemies and his friends. First, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but if you want to read through it as we go, I'm going to start around uh, Isaiah 53.3. But one of the things that Christ did, and one of the things that must happen to you if you want to love like Christ, is you must be despised, and you must be forsaken by others. You'll always be despised by your enemies. There will be people in life that hate you. Some of the the youth in here think, no, not me. Just wait. (laughs) There will be people in life that don't like you. They don't like what you believe. They don't like what you say. They don't like the way you dress. They don't like from the region from where you come from. And you'll have people that hate you because you stand up for Christ. There will be people that despise you. But what gets even harder is when your friends do it. When your friends begin to despise you. When your friends and your family despise you. And when they forsake you. And they will. This will happen. You will have friends that forsake you. You will have friends that despise you. And when they hate us, or when they look down upon you, or when they shun you, or abhor you, or neglect you, or leave you, or abandon you, or turn their back on you, we must love them like Christ loves. And the secret is, it's in those times that your love is built. Because that, that is the only time that you'll be given the opportunity to love like Christ. It is built in the times of forsaking and despising, as we pray for them, as we speak kindly about them, as we think wholesome thoughts towards them, and we bear all things and believe all things and strive to reconcile with them. It's in those moments that love is built, and that is when Christ is in there cultivating, the, or God the Father, if you want to say it that way, is pruning and cultivating the vine so that your love looks like Christ's love. You're like, I do love. Look at my life. I do love. And he says, no, but you don't love like Christ yet. And so he cuts and he cuts and he cuts. And it hurts, but you begin to produce more love. And then he cuts this part because you can't act like that. And this because you can't think like that. And this because you can't speak like that about them. And this because you cannot believe those things because that's contrary to what I say. And as he prunes, you love more like him. That's what he does. But if you want to love like Christ, you will be despised and you will be forsaken. If you want to love like Christ, you will be acquainted with grief and sorrow. As you're sinned against and as you watch friends and family and people and enemies sin against you, not only 
Well, well, you have grief and sorrow of your own, but those who love Christ bear up with others in their grief and their sorrow. When our friends and our family are sorrowful, we are sorrowful with them. And we bear up with them. And we love them and we pray for them. These are the things that he does in us to show us not only not only the things that, that, that are, are our idols. In fact, I mean, think about some of the most sorrowful and hard times. Times of divorce, times of death, times, times where something has happened that has caused major loss in your life. And any child of God will tell you, it's in those times where you start realizing all these other things that you've spent so much time doing, thinking about, going after, they just become meaningless real quick. You know, I mean, you, you, want to, you want to be a good employee and work hard at your job, move up in the company, but your wife gets cancer, that becomes secondary so fast, right? It, it means nothing all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that you don't, you don't continue working, but those circumstances immediately reveal the idols in our hearts and our lives. In times of turmoil within your family, immediately bring to light all the things in you that gotta go. Because you've got to cling to that person. You've got to love them. It's, it's, it's the suffering and the anguish in life that can happen maybe as a result of our own sin and maybe just as a result of sin being in this world that just pulls away all these things that we need to be spending less time on or maybe no time on and brings us right into focus on the one thing that matters, that we love others in the same way that he loves us. If we want to love like Christ, we'll be abandoned, we'll be neglected, overlooked, and ignored, just like Jesus Christ. When we are abandoned, when we are ignored, think about that. When, when you've done something, you hope that someone sees that you did it, and instead they give the credit to somebody else. When you've poured so much time into somebody's life, and then on a whim, they leave you and go do something else with somebody else or take your money and leave or whatever it may be. Being abandoned, being neglected, being overlooked, our first response is that we want to stand up for ourselves. We don't want to be like, that's mine. We want to be like, how could you treat me after all I have done for you? But that's not what he calls us to do. In fact, Christ did the very opposite. He went silently to the cross. He could have walked down those streets and be like, I created you, I created you, I created you. You owe me worship. You will one day bow your knee right? And he's the only one. He's the only one that deserved it. He's the only one that could look at every single person there and say, I am currently sustaining you with the word of my power and you wouldn't exist and you would be forever and banished to hell if it weren't for what I am doing for you right now. But he went to the cross silently, not returning insult for insult, not mocking them back, not even defending himself when he rightfully could have because he loved them. And if you want to love like Christ's love, and if his love is going to be cultivated in you, then you must love while being neglected, overshadowed, overlooked, abandoned, and forsaken. And be humble, thankful, patient, and gentle. I remember right out the gate as a believer, this is one of the first things I saw so big in my life was pride. Prior to being Christian, I worked to be known. I wanted to be known. I wanted to be successful. I wanted people to see the things that I was doing and go, yeah, that guy's awesome. 
And as a Christian, that was one of the first things that he just went and opened my eyes to. And I'm still striving against that desire to leave some kind of mark here on this earth where people remember me. I was telling my college students the other day, the thing that should drive us as believers, I love the words of John the Baptist when his disciples come to him and they say, they say, this dude over here, Jesus is baptizing more than you. What are you going to do about John? John says, he must become more. I must become less. A man can only, this is Brian's, Brian's version, a man can only do what God has allotted for him to do and that's it. And then dwindle away in obscurity. That should be our desire. Just be faithful and love others and be forgotten. When they remember you, they just remember that you loved Christ and you would do anything for Christ. That's what you want them to remember. You want them to remember the one that you followed. And you want them to remember the one that you always talked about. And you want them to remember the one that you tried to imitate and everything that you did. And you want them to remember him, not you, not me. That is the desire of the believer. And guess what, guys? The only way to get there is for people to forget you and to overlook you and to ignore you and to not give you credit for all the things you are doing. That's the path. We say, I want to love like Christ. And he says, okay. And then we say, no, 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 all the way there, right? The way there is by being forsaken, despised, overlooked, ignored, overshadowed, bearing up with others' griefs, and being thankful, patient, gentle, and humble during the walk. We must bear the griefs, sorrows, and sins of others. We must be struck and afflicted by those who love us, being crushed by them, suffering because of their sins, enduring the ones we love as they abandon us. We'll be oppressed and afflicted and not retaliate, will be maligned and slaughtered by the vicious words of others, both enemies and friends. And we endure it with silence and joy. And that's the only way love is built. If you want to love like Christ, then you have to walk through those things. Because that's the only time that kind of love can be cultivated. The love of Christ is not built at birthday parties and graduations and on the greatest days of your life, passion conferences, Yeah, you can express love as you sing, but love is built in the fire and built in the tribulation and built in the suffering. As we submit to his word, we lay aside our pride and our selfishness and we strive to love, to reconcile, to to intercede for others. We have to be willing with those hostile towards us to strive for peace with those hateful towards us to strive for love, with those estranged from us to strive for reconciliation because he says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, and that love never fails. This is the commandment he's given to us, that we love one another just as he has loved us. And it is hard until we submit. And it is hard until we see that what he is doing And when you understand that that is why these things are happening right now, you begin to rejoice that God is allowing circumstances to cultivate love in each of his children in a unique way that you have not experienced before so that each of his children look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. 
Because that not only is what pleases him, but it glorifies him, it glorifies his son, and he, guess this is, this is cool too, this is, this is a sermon for another day, and that's how he finds his children. If you keep reading, and we're not going to, I know you're like, I'm so hungry. If you keep reading, if you keep reading, it says, Jesus tells them, listen, you did not choose me. He says, I chose you and appointed, perfectly placed you for the purpose of you bearing my fruit. Again, Brian's translation, but go read it. John 15, something, something. All right? I chose you, appointed you, so that you would bear my fruit. And the purpose of us bearing the fruit of love is so that when people see us and they see the way we speak and they see the way we act towards others, especially when we're being sinned against, especially when we're being overlooked, especially when we're in times of distress, in times of trial, in times where we're being despised, when they see your character in that situation, they will see something that is unique from everything else that they have seen. That is when the love of Christ is displayed in the hearts of his children. And when his other children that are out there that are currently enemies see the love of Christ in you, that is what will drive them to repentance and belief. Again, I should go look it up, but 1 Peter 1, I think it is, he's telling that he basically, some of what he says, he says, you must live a holy life and I have chosen you as a chosen race and a holy people to speak the truth of Christ so that as those who are maligning you and in fact, context looks like, I mean, about to come and kill you. As they strive to malign and to scorn and to kill you, that they will glorify God on the day of their visitation as they remember your good deeds. On the day that the spirit of God within them says, believe. It will be your testimony, your words, your holy living that will be the catalyst, the cause, or the thing that they remember And every child of God in here will give you that same testimony. It was some faithful man or woman of God that opened their lips and spoke the loving truth of Jesus Christ to you that caused you to be saved. Or you saw them living it and you saw yourself and you said, I don't have that and I want that. That's what drives his children to himself. He sends us out to love others in the way he loves us so that we find all of his children. And then he begins that work in them. And that's what we call the church. So we must love others in the way that Jesus Christ has loved us and not be afraid of the trials, not be afraid of the the tribulations, not be afraid of the suffering, but understand, believing in what he says, that he is using those things not only for our good, but to cultivate the, the love of Jesus Christ in our lives and rejoice as we walk through those things in life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. The only way we can even love you is because you first loved us and sent your son to lay down his life for us. But having the love of God within us and the word of God describing your love, Father, we pray, help us to love in the way that Christ has loved us. Lord, we just pray as as we walk through this life, as we encounter tests and trials and tribulation, Lord, help us to keep our mind focused on things above. Help us to stop trying to figure things out. Help us to stop trying to fix things in our own, our own self-will. And help us to, to trust you, to submit to you, to obey you, and to love others in the way that you have loved us. We pray all this in your heavenly name. Amen.